Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. What did start has started to be a matter too late. Well, pricing is, I would just say the, the one adjective I would use is resilient. Uh, December 5th came and went. The importance of that date was that was the date when the European Union was going to not pick up any more ocean or waterborne oil cargoes from Russia. The interior countries like Hungary and whatnot had negotiated to be able to take oil by pipe from Russia, but ships calling in the Baltic or on the Black Sea or whatnot were not supposed to uh, pick up oil to bring to Rotterdam or other refining centers in the European Union or, and, and the UK as well had, had adopted the same approach. Uh, actually, I think the UK and the US stopped taking Russian cargoes earlier, but the, the interesting thing is that this was just crude cargoes. Uh, the European Union can still pick up or the, the 27 countries in the European Union can still pick up products and Russia is a large producer of what is called gas oil, which is basically two oil, diesel, jet fuel, that kind of thing. And so that there's a date in February, it may be, I forget what, when in the month it is, but there's a date in February where the, the, the product cargoes can't be imported into, uh, the European Union. The U.S. Treasury came up with this price cap system, which was adopted by the European Union. And of course, they tried to get India and China and whatnot to, uh, to adopt it. And they just had nothing doing. The idea behind price caps is that a price would be set at which you could take this cargo if you were a European country. And the way they were going to enforce that is with cargo insurance. The Russians that if anyone uh, exercises price caps on us, we'll just shut production in. So there were projections that, you know, the, the, the world oil economy, which is, I don't know, 90 million barrels a day of crude, would lose a million or 2 million barrels and oil prices would go to a hundred dollars and whatnot. Actually, not much happened. I think the Russians have their own tankers, both owned and, and, and in effect leased or chartered in. And so they're just moving the oil to India, China, or the Middle East. I mean, think of Saudi Arabia with big refining capacity. Saudi can take Russian oil and, and, and ship some of their oil to India or China make products out of it, and then send the products back to, uh, to the, to Europe. So I, I think what this means is that there's a great deal of resilience. I, I guess we always knew that, but there's a great deal of resilience in the oil industry. And it's not just the traders like Vito and traffic Europe. 
you know, Shell, BP, Total, they have their own trading department. And, you know, basically it's all kind of worked. So WTI is kind of in the mid seventies and we'll see what happens from here. Obviously a great deal is going to depend on oil pricing and how quickly China can go from having zero COVID to, you know, open season. And, uh, initially, uh, all of the reports are that economic activity is probably lower now than it was with zero COVID because everyone was afraid to go out and catch COVID. The Chinese, but, the, but people, China watchers, and, and including their own infectious disease specialists say that, you know, they'll achieve herd immunity by May or June, the, you know, higher number of deaths and whatnot, but they, uh, you know, they'll get the herd immunity. I think if that happens just when, uh, you know, U.S. economy may be slowing down and, and other developed countries, I think, I think China may in the second half of, of 23 be coming out pretty strong. So the impact of a recession or slowdown in the economy, whatever you want to call it, on oil and other commodities, I think are, is going to be a pretty, pretty muted. So it's, 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 $50 oil possibility, it's always a possibility. Is $100 oil, you know, you know, a low, a low probability, but a probability, probably not. I think what we've seen is that adjustments can be made in where oil's moving. And even though the Ukraine war seems destined to go on and the sanctions against Russia destined to go on, basically the oil industry has, has adapted. As far as natural gas goes, LNG prices have come way up as cold weather hit Europe. So if they got as low for near deliveries as 16 or $17 an MCF, in fact, they're all back up at 35 or $40 now. The Europeans have installed their own cap system, but they're, they're capping power prices and they're capping them at levels that are way over any kind of reasonable LNG price level. So I don't think they're going to have too much impact. In the United States, there's definitely, despite the current cold weather, there's this perception that there's overproduction from associated gas from the Permian to the Haynesville, and that overproduction is going to cause second half 23 gas prices rather to hold in where they are now in the futures curve at $4, $4.30 and 40 cents. That they'll actually, by the time we get to the fall of 23, We'll be seeing numbers like $3, maybe not $2.90, but $3.310, That's become kind of a, a consensus view because of sexual production. Consensus view is that that'll last for six or nine or 12 months. But as LNG projects come on, additional train at, 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 at Chenier Corpus Christi, more capacity adventure, another train at Chenier Sabine Path, Golden Pass will start up that this will be kind of a temporary situation. And then the additional five or six feeds of, of, of export capacity, if it comes on, will basically stop up that extra. Anyone who thinks they're very good at predicting this stuff is automatically wrong. But I mean, that is kind of the consensus view on that gas. Will this create an opportunity to acquire good gas companies like EQT and Antero and Chesapeake more? Might, might, but on the other hand, you know, maybe not too. So if you want to own an interest in guest companies. Now, in terms of the 11 pages, the 11th page came out, I, it was late by week. 
but plan to catch up this coming week. Coming week, going to do uh, midstream companies, Tinder, Enterprise, Energy Transfer, and Williams, and also tackle the large pharma companies, Pfizer, Moderna, because of their experience with vaccines and William Merck. I think as we get into the new year, probably try to do four or five, you know, a sheet on oil producers. That would be Pioneer and Diamondback and and EOG and maybe Devon. And then also do four gas companies. That'd be QT and Chero, just be quite sure what the fourth would be. But so we will we will have some additional work done on energy companies. The thing we'd like to talk about today, I don't know whether uh, Mike and Jason had a chance to visit after Mike and I talked this morning, Mike from Scotland. The thing we'd like to talk about today is AI software. And these AI software products are going to have a huge impact. I'm looking at page three of our web pages, which has Google and Apple. Every tech company is going to be impacted by this. And I'm thinking, not necessarily positively, because if this AI software could, in effect, supplant search, and from an Apple point of view, where they're they built their you know their business going forward, in in addition to making a lot of cash flows selling iPhones on their App Store, I mean, it seems to me something like this could just kind of obsolete both Apple's App Stores and, and Google's App Stores, but. With that, I, I'm going to turn it back over to Mike and have Mike and Jason carry the carry the rest of the half hour because they are pretty well versed in what's going on here. So over to you, Mike. Okay, well, I'll, I'll start really quick and we'll touch back to a few months ago. There was a image generation model that came out and we talked about it on the podcast. I think that was our first live and in-person one. And Jason Jason brought it up, and what was interesting about it was that our prior perspective of artificial intelligence is that it would replace the mundane jobs first and kind of go up this pyramid towards creative work. It turns out, initially with this image creation piece, but now also with chat GTP and the large language models, that it's actually creative work that seems to be the first tangible and valuable product that's being produced by some of this artificial intelligence models. Yeah, we, we were talking briefly about it earlier and just discussing what it took to train chat GPT. And it took, the estimate is roughly $12 million and 10,000 NVIDIA GPUs. So the, the hardware investment was pretty significant. But once, once that was made, $12 million to train this model is not a huge amount, I guess, compared to you know what, what Facebook and Google are spending training a lot of their models already. So we're kind of discussing, does this become a, a model where something, someone like OpenAI is, is a factory, if you will, for these, these AI models, um, and they just turn out you know, these kind of creative models at will, whether it's chat or image generation, they're working on video generation. So can, can they string together a series of images in a coherent manner to make a video, uh, that kind of thing? I, I think so, Jason. I, and I, I heard a case recently that maybe OpenAI becomes 
essentially the Taiwan semiconductor of large language models in that they will license their software and the older versions of the models will be pretty cheap. But if you want access to the, the bleeding edge, it's going to be very expensive and it's going to be very expensive for them to develop it. Uh, one, one point that $12 million, the general view of the current capability of the chat GPT is that we're about two orders of magnitude of capability away from the power of the human brain. So two orders of magnitude in cost. So you're talking a billion dollars if you're using today's hardware. So there's a significant need for not only processing power, and it, which means more silicon, more semiconductors, but also energy in order to run these models and build and, and train these models. We'll add there's on the semiconductor side, there's some advances in research going on right now where it doesn't really help the, the training side of it, but the inference or the, the, the running of the model, it can essentially be baked into the chips or are you know, programmed into the physical hardware where the cost of energy to run these and the speed at which they run becomes dramatically smaller. I think order, several orders of magnitude, less energy and time to um, produce an answer. So on a, on a scale of how fast chat GPT itself runs, it can produce about 20 words per second. So much faster than a human, but not really as fast as you expect the computer to be able to, to come up with text. So, so the, the speed at which these things can run will increase dramatically in the future. What are, we, what are we talking about, Jason? Are we talking about just many more server farms with many more chips in them? Or what, what, the, what will be required? Absolutely. And, that, and that's, you know, that's already been going on. So AI has been you know, predicting what, what we should advertise to you and what kind of ads you should see for years now. We're just adding more, more GPUs or other kind of chips that, that'll be used. A lot of it's specialty hardware, but we're just adding that to the server farms. And you know, you, the, the amount of compute you access in your data day-to-day -day just increases. So if you think about, if you think about ChatGPT, I heard it, it takes more than one cent, less than 10 cents to produce an answer to you when you know one, a one paragraph or sentence response. So you know that that's running many times to just produce that to show you ads to host the page everything so if we can become much more efficient with how we execute these models then you know it, it'll dramatically reduce our energy needs in the future or well, at least we'll maybe keep them that, flat <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll get we'll get to that before the half hour but the thing that struck me this morning and I, i'm going to refer to mike because maybe i it, that the current generation of AI software could do a pretty good job taking uh, SAT tests or other kinds of tests that people take for admission to school. But over to you, Mike. I actually saw that this morning as well, that a, somebody took an SAT with ChatGPT and they scored a 1020, which is you know, not, a, not a great score by any means, but it's probably right on the bell curve at average, which is 
it's relatively interesting because part of the whole concept behind these models is they're making probabilistic decisions based on a world of knowledge. So the fact that it ends up with a relatively average score on a pretty universal test, at least among U.S. universities, is is pretty impressive. Is that a, so, a testament to how average the amount of knowledge on the internet is and how, and how much misinformation there is? That's an interesting point. Yeah. So what would the impact be on our large tech companies? Let's start, let's, let's do it by free cash flow. The, the company with the largest free cash flow is Apple amongst the tech companies, amongst all companies with 90 billion of free cash flow. What's the impact on Apple of this type of, uh, of software of becoming widely used? I, in my opinion, I think Apple's probably the least impacted, but Jason, maybe you have a different perspective. For Microsoft, the OpenAI uses Azure. So they're generating a, a tremendous amount of revenue from running the training of these models. So if you think of the, the hyperscalers as you know, the infrastructure to create these models, they should, they should benefit greatly. You know, they're going to, they're going to dramatically increase the amount of compute they need to sell people to create these instead of just hosting web pages, you know, or, or running a, a normal software application. Now, you know, I have to spend $12 million to create a unique model, which is much more than a typical startup spends in a, on AWS, for instance, to, you know, to start a normal SaaS business. Well, well try this on for size, Jason. Currently, Apple pays Google a very large sum of money just so they can be the default search app. Potentially, I guess this could create competition for search and maybe it would be so well-funded that it could compete with Google. I don't know. Or maybe Google won't be able to justify spending it because people will be flocking to some new search tool. Right. I, you know, Google might be in the worst position of, of all the big tech. I think that's the, the assumption. Uh, yeah. Well, they're the, they're the smallest on the, the compute, you know, selling server side as well. So they might not pick up business there and then they might lose their search part of their search business. They do have a good AI team though. I mean, they do oh, yeah. alpha fold. Like the, the, that's the other thing is open AI, AI is really just what we know about. There's, there's certainly a lot of work being done by all of these companies that we have no idea about. Does it surprise you that, that this software is available, a million people have downloaded it, and that it's a privately financed company, I'm gonna guess under a billion dollars of private equity has been invested in it, and that they kind of get to this position ahead of, ahead of Google, who's been working hard in this area for, you know, all of its existence. I mean, is this like is this like Hewlett Packard in the garage? Does this show that that the tech companies they may they may be able to buy these things? Of course, with the kind of antitrust uh, review, uh, you know, Microsoft so far unable to do Activision, maybe buying huh. buying the the company that is a potential competitor won't really be an option, won't be permitted under antitrust rules. How, I mean, is, is this 
is this kind of a restoration of the ability of a couple of people and with the good idea to steal a march on the large tech companies? I hope so. I think that we've, we've spent the last, uh, we've spent a, quite a few of the last, you know, five, seven years of big tech just getting bigger. And I think it'd be healthy for the ecosystem in general if we have some new players that cause some disruption there. I, what do you think, Jason? Yeah, I completely agree with that. I don't know if it's going to be as easy as a, a couple of people in a garage anymore. It's, unless it, it, OpenAI makes it easier to kind of take one of these pre-trained models and, and then train it on a specific data set, which, which can be done, you know, just starting from scratch is a big undertaking. It's, you have to capture a large amount of data and then uh, it's a huge resource commitment to train these models too. So if they do make them available as kind of templates that you can focus on a particular application, whether it's like clinical trial documents or, you know, some other kind of research, then that might make it possible for a small team to, to get ahead. But these are really huge projects today. I like you covered two things in the remaining five minutes. We'll have more of this next Wednesday, but two things I'd like to cover are on page eight, the comparison of Exxon, Chevron, and Conoco. And I'm going to leave Conoco out of this discussion. But the other technical development of, you know, possible, you know, possible inflection point is a effort in one of the U.S. national labs to uh, try to have a power with fusion where this has been an objective for years and years and years, and suppose it was feasible, how would it develop? And what you see on page eight is two very strong companies, which in Exxon and Chevron, which have gotten stronger as the price of oil increased. But these people give, well, give Microsoft a run for their money in terms of free cash flow, Exxon's 60, over 60 billion and Chevron's around 50 billion. Remember, this is after income taxes, after CapEx. And, and both of these companies are not hampered the way AT&T and Verizon are, where a, a high portion of the free cash flow goes out dividends. In Exxon's case, 15 billion out of 65 billion goes out in, in Chevron's case, 11. I believe that to the extent that capital is required to start to make power with fusion, it's a lot more likely than less likely that Exxon and Chevron, but also the European equivalent, BP and Shell and Total, are likely to be the ones that can get the capital together and put in the initial facility. The alternative in the power business would be to get your state regulators, because the states regulate power to have, you know, a new facility, like for example, building a nuclear plant in the Southeast or the Southern company. And so what the utility has to do is get system set up so that the customers pay whether or not the, the facility works or not, or whether it works well or not, and just not sure that individuals, first of all, I don't think that 
regulation of power prices is going to go to a federal basis. I think it'll stay on a state basis. And I just don't see these uh, power utility commissions generally appointed by the governor agreeing to allow, you know, the Southern Company or Nextera or AES, American Electric Power, to make those kinds of investments. I think the capability to build these things from an engineering point of view and the capital to do it is more likely to be in the large integrated oil companies. Now, when you buy Microsoft, you're paying about 30 times free cash flow or about a 3% free cash yield. When you buy Apple, it's about 25 times free cash flow or about 4% free cash yield. Granted, it's bulked up by good oil pricing, but when you buy Exxon or Chevron, it's like seven times free cash flow or 13 or 14%. I think that to the extent that there is, you know, other things other than fossil fuel, I would expect these two companies and BP and, and Shell and Total with their engineering capability, their capability to manage large projects and their very strong cash flow positions to kind of lead the charge. I, that doesn't necessarily mean that you want to start off 23 by owning Exxon or Chevron or both, but just a, a, a commentary. One of the advantages of doing these, these sheets the one that was added is kind of the Midwest sheet, which is Caterpillar, Deere, Emerson, and Generac. And just a commentary on these four companies, Caterpillar is very strong. And Caterpillar and Deere are almost mirror image of each other, very much like uh, Home Depot and Lowe's. Now, Caterpillar is more into, they specialize in construction equipment. Deere is primarily providing equipment for agriculture, but they have very similar characteristics. They both have free cash flow. They are trading, you know, at four and five percent free cash yield, so they're not cheap. Emerson is a loop is a project, I think, for 23 for Mike and Jason and myself, because this is a company that's increased its dividend every year for 50 years. I mean, it is a superbly run company, and they're very much into robots and robot software and they are making some very adventurous or, or aggressive investment by finding public companies that they take an interest in so more work needs to be done on that generac with all this cold weather people worried about you know the grid grid reliability and whatnot which is a legitimate concern generac an interesting company it's come down a lot. I mean, it's like in the nineties and it had been over 300. When you go through their 10 Q, they, they say that the issue is with their dealer network, that they can't have, they can't field sufficient numbers of people to install and service the generators. And that's probably true. Certainly we see that in the energy business with the oil and gas business, extremely hard to attract people and that extremely hard to not have someone else raid your employees. However, and, and the thing has gotten down to a pretty reasonable level. It's about 12 times free cash flow and about 8% free cash yield. This is a solid business. And I'm sure if the problem is with their dealer network, 
they'd sell it. I'm just a bit concerned. I don't think, you know, I'd, I'd like to see another quarter, certainly the fourth quarter of the year. I it, it just seems to me that complaining about the dealer network when you operate through dealers is a little bit like saying uh, the proverbial, the dog ate my homework. But uh, still, it's an interesting company, and it has come down a lot. Let's take two more minutes. Uh, after all, we're in kind of almost the vacation period. When we open the page two and we look at these chip stocks, I assume that to the extent they're more bigger server farms, that the first two companies here, NVIDIA and AMD, are the ones that are best positioned for that. That Intel is trying to play catch up with Taiwan Semiconductor, that Micron has two big overseas competitors, and Qualcomm is pretty pretty much focused on iPhones and whatnot. But let's nope. put it on the agenda for next week. Okie doke. Everyone stay warm, stay well, stay healthy. We'll be we'll be on at the same time next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. 